Well, from Matthew chapter 15 through 17, uh, what you see again and again are, are leaders and crowds of people who reject the Lord Jesus Christ through their unbelief. It's not that they have bad thoughts about him. It's not that they even openly oppose him. It's just that they refuse to recognize his claim to be the Messiah, the king over all, the son of the living God. And so by their refusing to call that as their own, they're rejecting him. Now, in the context of this passage, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20, I want you to know and see that this passage is is in many ways the climaxing point of Jesus' teaching to the disciples. Things will shift after this. This is, this is really, it's like he takes them to the top of the mountain and he says, now finally recognize this. Because in this passage, it's the disciples who will articulate the teaching and the person of Christ, which Christ had been assigning to them for many months within his own ministry. Now, alongside this, this climaxing point, alongside this, this passage has been the point of tremendous controversy in the church since the days of the Reformation. And we would just proudly say, why? It seems pretty clear. But we still, I mean, good men have, have literally fought over this. So we want to take it and see it for what it is. Some have tried to use this passage to prove that Peter was the very first pope. And then there were sequential popes after him. And there are many uh, other questions that circle around this passage. Like, what is the rock that Jesus is talking about? In what sense is Peter the rock of which Jesus was speaking? What are the keys of the kingdom? What does this mean to bind and loose? Uh, we'll be, I'll be unable to answer all of those as much as we all might want. I'll just sarcastically say again, it's not that hard. It's just clearly right there. But we want to give ourselves to it because we'll see what God has for them in this text as being the same thing that he wants for us to understand today. Uh, we won't do justice to all of these things, but as we see from God's word what it means to, to confess and profess that Jesus is the Messiah, how much that is meant to encourage us along our journey in Christ. We will, be a, we will be asked, what are we to believe? What are we to confess? And what are we to then express about Christ? Now, here in the context, this, this area is called Caesarea Philippi. Jesus here takes his disciples aside. You can imagine him like they're on somewhere and he's like, okay, let's have a, let's have a holy huddle to the right. Takes his disciples aside and he asks them two very important questions, but know that he's got one goal in mind when he's asking them these questions. Jesus is desiring to impress in their hearts and minds of his disciples what he has been teaching to them about who he is. So he wants to, he wants to finally crystallize this. He wants them to be absolutely convicted, absolutely committed, absolutely confirmed in the truth of who he is because from, his point, from this point on in his ministry, he's going to explicitly teach them about the nature and the work uh, that he has been doing. So the tension in this text is that they will not understand the significance of his work if they are not absolutely clear about who he is. They won't be able to follow him passionately unless they know exactly who they're following. So in this passage here in Matthew, Jesus clarifies a claim and a confirmation of who he is, of his person. I think Matthew gives us three arguments. He is showing three arguments that Jesus gives his people about about what he's aiming to instruct his disciples on. These arguments, they, they set, uh, I think they, they set the disciples, they set these apostles, and they set us on a trajectory that will ultimately bring Christianity to, frankly, where you, I, where you and I are here today. 
Imagine getting uh, this. Imagine this is like looking back in time, where the disciples here are getting a sneak peek on what it means to be a follower of Jesus today in 2022. I don't know if you've ever gone back and read a book twice, uh, maybe a novel or a mystery or whatever, but that first chapter, you're like, wow, whoever wrote this, they brilliantly started putting things in order to where at the end of the book, we fully understand what's going on. And in the same way, I think that you and I can look back on, on chapter 16 and go, oh man, I know what's going to happen 10 chapters later, so I can, I can have more confidence in what Jesus is talking about shows the glory of what he ultimately performed later. I imagine many of you, though, alongside that are here today wondering, I love the Lord. I'm committed to him. I I am a soul that is redeemed, at least I think, but I want to know what to do. What do I do with the faith that I have inside of me? How do I spend my day? How am I, a a singled out, blood-bought, redeemed soul, supposed to operate in how I want to glorify the Lord? Those, those words might be great. You might have heard them that I want to take charge for Christ or I want, to, I want to live this summer like never before. But what do we do? I think this text gives us an incredible several arguments of what to do. And argument number one, if you're using an outline in verses 13 and 14, I think we see the first argument that Jesus gives us is that we are to know the whole Christ. Meaning we're to know him completely. Not partially, that won't be good enough. We're to know him completely. The first thing you're going to see in these verses, in verses 13 and 14, this is the first question that Jesus asks his disciples. And here in these verses, you see the crowd's view of him. Notice Jesus here takes the disciples aside, where he's going to teach them three things. If you look at verses 13 and 20 in context, you'll see that he focuses there on uh, teaching them about who he is as a person, his nature. And then if you look ahead in verses 21 through 23, you'll see that he moves on to teach them about his work. So not just who he is, but what he is doing. And then beyond that, he gives a testimony of what it means to fully follow follow him. The, The person and the work of Christ are necessarily tied together. You can't have one without the other. If you don't understand the the nature of Christ, you'll never understand the work of Christ. If you don't understand the work of Christ, you actually have have a shortened view of who Christ is altogether. And if you preview a little bit, then if you look down at verses 24 through 28, you'll actually see that Christ goes on to teach his disciples about the cost of discipleship. So Matthew 16 contains some pretty heavy stuff on top of all the controversy that's there. The person of Christ, the work of Christ, the cost of discipleships, how we operate, what is this thing that we come to every week? And once there in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked the disciples a question. Who do the people say that I am? Who do they think that I am? He's wanting to ask these disciples to reflect on, on their past, you can imagine, several months. What are, people, what are people talking about? What are people saying? And he does this intentionally. He's asking for their reflection on what they've been around. People had given their opinion before to the disciples, even to Jesus, and everyone around them. The Pharisees, you remember, what did they say about Jesus? Well, they say he's like Satan, that his power comes from the evil one. The crowds gave testimony to other people around them from time to time. And they asked, but Jesus asked this question to the disciples who are other people saying that I am? And the disciples give him three representative answers. I want you to see these three names as representations of how they're viewing him altogether that have been given by the crowds. And we find these answers, by the way, in the Gospels and various other places too. First, he says, who do people say that I am? First, they say that some people are saying that he is John the Baptist. 
And then another group says that he's like Elijah. And then a third reputation that Jesus has says is, or Jesus has is like the prophet Jeremiah. Now, you might think, that sounds pretty good. I mean, if, if I'm the combination of maybe Jeremiah or Elijah or John the Baptist or even those guys on their own, that's a pretty good reputation. You know, this isn't like the Pharisees saying you're like, you know, the spawn of Satan. They're giving him compliments, aren't they? But there's a problem here, and Jesus goes into that. What is the problem with being called John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah? John the Baptist was bold. He was strong. He was righteous. No one was like him. Elijah was a great prophet. He preached boldly against idolatry, even as people were attacking him. And Jeremiah, I'm not sure you can think of a minister in the Old Testament who is a better example of perseverance under suffering than the person of Jeremiah. But Jesus is going to demonstrate to them that those are incomplete pictures. Each of these designations, and how he does this, is that each of these designations mixes theoretical truth. So there's something there. But he mixes that with actual error. They mix that with actual error. I mean, it's true that Jesus was like Jeremiah, who, who suffered greatly in preaching the truth. No one, no one more intensely than Jesus. It's true that he was like Elijah, calling out people of their sins. No one was like him better than that. Or who, who it, it is true that he was like John the Baptist. But the only truth is to say a half-truth was given about him because it doesn't tell the whole story. Friend, you don't understand Christ if you only think of him as a teacher. You don't get it. If you only think of him as a prophet, that's not who Jesus is. Or if you only think of him as a man of sorrows like Jeremiah, that's, that's not Jesus at all. He is much more than that. And so every single one of these designations falls short. Doctrinally, I think I said this last week or maybe two weeks ago, that this, we are helped if we understand doctrinally the doctrine of what is called the simplicity of God, where he is not made up of a bunch of parts and that defines him. You know, like what is a truck? Well, a truck is in part tires and in part metal and in part gadgets and all that. I clearly don't know what a truck is. And it goes down the road. Like, that is not who Jesus is. He's not a, he's not a composition of things, but, but more, like, more like a crystal that has glimmering effects to it the more you turn it around. But it, it is one solid thing or a spider web. It is, it is seen in its beauty as a composite of his glory. He is not just one of these things along the way. Now, I want you to imagine, to think of the tension of this, I want you to imagine playing basketball at the YMCA here in Enid. And, and all of a sudden, you're playing basketball, and a guy shows up, and his name is Michael Jordan. And you're watching Michael Jordan show up, and you're like, hey, man, you're pretty good at basketball. And you go, you know, Enid actually has a pretty decent minor league basketball team. I bet if you tried really hard, and if you keep pressing, I, I bet, MJ, you could play on Enid's own basketball team. I bet you could play for them. And it's true. I'm sure Michael Jordan could play for Enid's semi-pro basketball team. But that is actually a very incomplete view of who MJ is. Well, this is something like these kinds of things that are being said about Jesus. Meant as a compliment, but falling way short of who he is. He was, he was demonstrating himself to be by experience expositing scripture by performing these miracles, he was, he was counting these compliments as a rejection. By saying that he's Elijah, they're rejecting him. By saying he's John the Baptist, back from the dead, they're rejecting him. And friends, I, I hope you understand that the message within this is for us. It's not enough to think highly about Christ. 
if we're going to be Christians, we're going to be disciples of Jesus. And if we're going to be disciples of Jesus, if a follower of Jesus, we must embrace him as he has revealed himself within the gospel accounts that have been given to us. It's not enough to think things that ultimately fall short about him to count yourself as a believer. We do not follow a Christ that we have invented in our minds. We do not follow a Christ who is merely a great teacher. Uh, No, we're called to follow after a Christ who claimed and was all that he said he was, the begotten Son of God, the Redeemer and Savior of the nations. That's the Christ that we're to worship. We're to know him in whole. We're to have such a beautiful and clear and powerful picture of who he is because worshiping anything else is a form of idolatry. So you and I, a call from this is you and I need to be really good at understanding who Jesus is. And and that is all the definitions that we could say about him. He is both powerful and gentle. He is both welcoming and also confrontive. But by understanding him more deeply, we're able to worship him better and better. So that's Jesus' first argument in asking people to to no longer reject him for who he is. You you want to reject Jesus? Well, you keep having the picture of who he is in your mind. You want to not reject Jesus? Know the whole Christ. The second argument that Jesus gives here is that we we must be people people who not only know the whole Christ, but confess the whole Christ. The second argument that we're given is confess the whole Christ, not just know him completely, but express him boldly. If, if you'll look at verses 15 and 16, you'll see the apostles' confession of Christ here. And in response to Jesus' question, they'd given Jesus the responses from the crowd, but then Jesus turns to them with a second major question, but, but who do you say that I am? And, and in the Greek here, the, the you is, is an emphatic personal pronoun. So you could, you could underline this. You could see this in all caps. You could see it boldly asking, who do you? say that I am. Jesus wants to know what they have to say. They've heard what they've said about other people, but now they got to show their cards. Who do you say that I am? And he he intentionally separates them from others because they can't be caught up in the opinions of others. And he's pressing them. He calls them to show their hand. What are their convictions? What are their thoughts? What do you now tell other people about me? I've heard what other people tell about me to you. I want to know what you tell to others. And Peter answers the the question uh, as a spokesman for the group, and he answers it with incredible brevity, and yet with great depth and power. He says, you, look there at the text, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, I want to hover over this for a little bit of time, and I want you to notice four things. First, Peter is called Simon Peter in this passage. Now, in John's gospel, that is a normal thing for Peter to always be called Simon Peter. Uh, It's a formal title. Uh, John is a very formal writer in how he dictates what we ought to know about God. But in the synoptic gospels, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those are known as the synoptic gospels. They are are most like one another in their arrangement. Uh, What Peter is typically called is Peter. And in fact, in the synoptic gospels, he's only called Simon Peter twice. You think about that. So, so that should catch us as we're just hovering over the text. I know a lot of us read the Bible too quickly or we just go, okay, I know who Peter is. He's a guy that jumps out of the boat and freaks out. No, no, no. All of a sudden, stop, recognize that there is gravity to this text because he's being called Simon Peter. And both times that Simon Peter is called Simon Peter in the synoptics, they come in an area of great contextual significance. So you can think of this. For Matthew, to write Peter as Simon Peter here, he gives us a tip 
uh, that relational gravity has increased. It would be like you gaining attention of your mother's voice when it comes at your first name and your middle name. Something, something is up, and I must pay attention to it. That's how we ought to read this text. Second thing I want you to notice here is that Peter is representing the whole group. It's not unusual in the Gospels for this to happen either. Often Peter represents all of the apostles. He, he seems to be the one who asks the questions and makes the comment. I can't remember what book it is, but it's, it's, a, it's a leadership book by John MacArthur, and it talks about Peter being the greatest leader of the disciples because he's the one who's always taking charge. He's the one who's always asking questions. He might step in the wrong place sometimes, or his foot may slip a little bit, but he's the one who's going. So there's something here about Peter sticking himself out of the crowd and answering on behalf of the other Gospels. You might think of him as a representative head in this contextual case. The third thing I want you to notice is the timing. Though Peter has made professions of Christ before, remember when he walked out on the water, he confessed there, but Jesus has pulled these men aside because he wants them to make a profession of him not in the heat of the moment, not as they might be walking on water, you might think of this not as a, as a gun might be held against their head. Not when their emotions are running hot after seeing a miracle. He wants them to stop. He asks them to reflect. He pulls them off the side of the road, you could say. And he wants them to say what they truly believe. This is what they're convicted of from their hearts without any emotion running dry. He's asking them to stop and reflect and say, men, what do you really think about me? Fourth thing I want you to notice here is the conviction. This is the most obvious one, the conviction in Peter's statement. There are only 10 words. But in the, re, in the original, you, you'll see that there are actually four definite articles. You know, a definite article would be like the son, the king, the post office, that definite article there. So it's emphatic. He is the Christ. He is the son. And the way that Peter, Peter answers Jesus is showing his boldness and objectiveness that's coming out. He doesn't excuse what other people have said. He doesn't hide behind them as a bunch of ragtag fishermen or ostracized people. There's no false humility here. Well, you know, we're just, you know, Jesus, we're a bunch of fishermen and tax collectors. So, um, you know, we say this, but, you know, whatever. He doesn't hide behind that. He doesn't have any postmodern language like, well, other people say this, but my truth about you would be X, Y, and Z. Nor does he give a politically correct answer. Well, to some people, you would be this. But I, Peter says, no, he just boldly, quickly says, you are the Christ. You are God's living son. He makes an abrupt statement. He pronounces a complete confession and truth about the Messiah. It is a profound statement. And so I want us to look at two parts. So if you're following along, point number two of the outline. Just gave you four points. Let me give you two more. Number four and six, but they're independent of each other. Okay, dig in a little bit deeper on these phrases, these 10 words. You are the Christ. By saying that, Peter is saying, you are the Messiah, you are the deliverer, the prophets who all of us have known about you. They're right about saying who you are. You are the long-awaited deliverer of God's people. You are the Messiah. Now, that's a confession the disciples have made before, but it has never been this emphatic. This is why, in many ways, this is the climax. It's almost like they're really starting to get it in emphatic form. The second thing I want you to see in this phrase is he not only says, you are the Christ, but he goes on to say, the son of the living God. Peter confesses he is God's unique begotten son, in a sense not applicable to any other human being. No one is God's unique son. No one else is the begotten son of the father. You are the very son of God, he says. 
You are the divine son. You are the divine son of the living Yahweh. And he is saying that Jesus is divine. He's looking at this man. And he's not only saying, you're the one who will deliver us, but you are God. He is God's own son, and there is no one like him. One, one commentator says on this text, Peter knew that Jesus was not just another in a long line of prophets to whom God had spoken in many ways in the past, but he was the peak of these people's longings, the son of the living God who knew as only such a son knows the mind and purposes of a heavenly father. Now, this is an extraordinary claim. And friends, his profession is at the very heart of the Christian faith. No less valuation. They were saying, uh, the crowd say he's like this, they say he's like this. You can see and separate what this man says they believe versus what other people profess and confess. No less value of Christ will do. You and I will be tempted to bring God down on our level. You and I will be tempted to speak about God by using common earthly language not given to us in the Bible. Why? Because we want to make him a lot like ourselves and we want to be able to conceptualize in some way his glory because there is none like him. He is on his own. He is the very deliverer and the deity that will come and save people. No less valuation will do. Every true Christian acknowledges that Jesus is the Messiah. And this means not merely assenting to that truth, but it also means knowing that truth, not even not disagreeing with that truth, but fully embracing that truth. Believing it with all of our souls from the very bottom of and committing our lives to him as the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is, this is what separates, friends, if you're here and not a Christian, this is what separates you from us. It's not our look. It's not how cool we are or uncool we are. It's not that we gather at a particular time. It's not that we live in a certain area. It's not that we ascribe to something, you know, on lesser value things. We confess that Jesus is the Messiah. When I joined a church in college in Stillwater, I had to verbally, before the congregation and in written form, uh, give an answer to a question. And the question was this, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and trust in him alone for your salvation as he is offered in the gospel? And in our passage case, it would almost be said, do you believe Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God? Friends, that is, that is at the root our, conf our confession. That is, the, and the issue that Jesus calls his disciples here too is to confess that truth that separates them from everything else. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus is wanting the disciples to make a clear confession that they acknowledge that he is the Savior of sinners. He is the Messiah and he's the Son of the living God. Friends, the, the question, the call of this text is do you confess that same thing? And, and emphatically, if you do not confess that same thing, you are not a believer. But be assured, if you do confess that, then that has been a gift that has been given to you by God Almighty. If you have confessed him in his divinity, if you have confessed him in his personhood, if you have confessed him in his love, this is the heart of true Christianity. The call of the Christian is to know him in whole, but also to confess him completely from their heart. Now, there's a third argument that Jesus gets gives, and this is, this is the more complicated part of the passage. There, it, we are to know the whole Christ. We are to confess the whole Christ. But the third argument that Jesus gives is that then there is now a charge through these men to preach 
now to speak, to proclaim the whole Christ. So we've not only seen that we're to know and confess, but you'll see in verses 17 through 20 there, look at them, that, the, that there is now an apostolic proclamation of that confession, that the apostolic preaching that will become the very foundation of the church. So the, when I say apostolic, I mean these men will be known as apostles. They will be set aside as apostles, building the church on their profession and confession of who Christ is. So from this point on, we see here that there is now apostolic preaching that will lay the very foundation of what you and I inherit today that is called the church. So we are a church that is built on the apostolic preaching of these men. Look at verse 17. Jesus is saying, the reason that you believe and that they don't is not because you've been with me more than they have. It's not, it's because God has shown it to you. He's opened your eyes. And by the way, Jesus says it in a very striking way here. He says, it's because my Father in heaven has revealed it to you. So you believe these things because it's been given to you. Did you know that the Gospels in Jesus it never talks about uh, himself or the Father in the way that you and I talk about him or the Father? Jesus, even in this phrase, reveals his own uniqueness, his own glory in saying of what God has done for you. No, nowhere else in the Gospels does Jesus address God as our Father. He always addresses God as either my Father or your Father. And when he tells us how to pray, he says, your Father, or pray our Father as talking about you all together. But Jesus' relation to God is unique because he's the very eternal son of the living God. And then Jesus says something that cause, causes great controversy and it caused it for many years. Look at verse 18. Let me read it to you. Verse 18 where it says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What Jesus says here is that he will build his church, his assembly of gathered saints, on the apostles and upon the apostolic, their teaching, the apostolic teaching. Now, to stop and explain that, because this in and of itself is very debatable by people who call themselves Christians all over the world, there has been, there has been some who have said that the word rock in this passage rever, refers to the very specific person of Peter. So he's like saying, you Peter, on this rock, you, I will build my church. Now, I believe and see from this text, and all you have to do is look at Matthew 16, verse 23, to call this into question. Look at Jesus' words to Peter in Matthew chapter 16, verse 23. In context, in verse 22, and Peter took them aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And he, Jesus, turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So the very person of Peter can't be in play here because Peter will then be rebuked. So what kind of church is being set up on, on this man if he's already being rebuked in just a couple of verses later? So there are some who believe that Peter is the foundation of the church. People call him the Pope, the first Pope. And then there are sequential popes after him. Now, second view of this, uh, second view of this passage, some people have said that the phrase, the rock, refers to the confession that Peter made. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and so they're going to say, okay, that confession is what Jesus was intending to convey of what he's going to build the church on, a confession of Christ. Sounds great. And therefore, Jesus is really saying, upon this truth, I will build my church. But the problem is the phrase that Jesus gives us here and the phrase that Matthew gives us here is, is based on uh, most likely an Aramaic view or Aramaic words that Jesus would, would have been speaking. 
And the word Peter and the word rock are exactly the same in the Aramaic language. Kephas and Kephas, just like Pierre or Pierre in French. Pierre the name in French, that could be someone's last name or first name. But then also Pierre the rock in French clearly refers to a stone. So Jesus is saying something very personal to Peter, and Peter represents all of the apostles. That's kind of a second view, that, that the foundational truth of the church is based on the confession that Peter just made. Now, a third way this can be read is the phrase, the rock, refers to Peter and the other apostles collectively. The other apostles, in view of their confession, as the nearby foundation for the church. In other words, all through the New Testament, it makes clear that Jesus is the foundation of the church. And we're not calling that into question. I could show you dozens of passages using that precise language where Jesus is the foundation, that Jesus is the foundation of the church. And in this passage, notice that Jesus is speaking of himself as the owner of the building of the church. And he sees his apostles as part of that body of people that he's building the church upon. He sees them as the foundation. And there is scripture in confirming this. If you have your Bibles, go to Ephesians chapter 2. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. If you're new to the Bible, go about six or seven, eight, eight books to the right. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 20. The, the scriptural confirmation is that he sees these apostles as the foundation of the church. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 20. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Here the foundation is said to be the apostles and the prophets. And when we turn to John's vision, in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, we see the picture of the heavenly Jerusalem, which is the foundation of the city. The names of the apostles and the elders are there. Jesus is saying here that the apostles will have a unique role in founding this church. John Calvin, a theologian of the 15th century, says, Jesus, 16th century, Jesus is saying, though you are now a tiny number of men, and therefore your confession has little worth at present time, yet the time will soon come, and it will stand out splendidly and will spread far wider. He says that Peter and the apostles' role in building the church are on record. And we, you'll see in Acts chapters 1 through 11 where, Jesus, or where the, the Spirit is led to stress Peter's role in this process. So what, is, what does he mean uh, in saying this? You know, you have those three views. One is a pope, one is the confession, and the other is the, the collection of these apostles. I think it's helpful to just be reminded what a cornerstone is. I was raised in a town that had a lot of mason projects. Everyone knows what a mason is, that, that club of, of men and women. All, all over, it felt like the schools and the post office and everything formal in town had a giant cornerstone that was given to them by the masons. And what a cornerstone does is it sets the trajectory on how that building is then later going to be built up. If that cornerstone is off, or not shaped like a square, then that whole building is going to be shaped funky. But if you have a good cornerstone, which Jesus is called in the scriptures, the chief cornerstone, the cornerstone that other people rejected, you know, they looked at that corner, ah, that's not good enough, that's not good enough. They were rejecting Jesus. He is the one who is the cornerstone of the church, and then 
alongside him that the spirit-empowered teaching that will come through the apostles is the very foundation of what the church then ascribes. So we would be helped in understanding that what the prophets were doing was speaking God's truth. What Jesus was doing was preaching God's truth. What the apostles would later do in, in all of this part of our Bible was preaching God's truth. So what is our church have its foundation on the truth of Christ as it's revealed in Scripture. Now, he goes on to talk about uh, giving the people there the keys of the kingdom. What does it mean when he says he's given Peter and the apostles the keys? He's saying that they now have the power and the authority to determine who's admitted and who is barred from the visible church. The apostles will be given the power and then the church will be given the power to determine who is admitted and who is barred from the visible church. The the phrase binding and loosing is an ancient phrase indicating the setting of terms of conduct within the community of the church. Jesus is saying here that he is assigning his apostles with the authority to bind and loose through their preaching and through their discipline in the church. And Peter himself provides us with the first example. Later on, in other apostolic accounts, what we see them doing is then charging elders to administrate this role. So as the apostles would die off, they have left in their, um, in their, I don't know what it's called. Uh, they have left in f- front or behind, man, I'm, <laughs> this is a whatever. All right, so they have, they have charged then elders to lead the church within this context. Um, it will end at some point. Okay, here we go. All right, what does it mean? Jesus is saying uh, that he is giving the apostles the keys of the kingdom. Now, I want you to think about the book of Acts where this is first demonstrated to us. And think of Peter's exercise of church discipline in Acts chapter 5. You remember that event? There was Ananias and Sapphira. They have attempted to defraud the Lord, and Peter approaches them. And what's the church discipline that's administered? Their death. The Holy Spirit slays both Ananias and Sapphira for their wickedness. And so we see the apostles exercising the keys in an extraordinary way. And then Jesus says something stunning. He says to the apostles in verse 20, Tell no one that I'm the Messiah. Well, I mean, you think about that and you're like, you just revealed this incredible truth and then you're telling them to not tell anyone. Well, I mean, think of it. If they can't figure out that he's not Jeremiah or Elijah or one of the prophets, what in the world would they do with the other acclamation that he's the Messiah? What in the world would they do with it? How would they misunderstand that? And so Christ tells his disciples not to proclaim yet that publicly because of the potential danger of misunderstanding because he will show everyone later through his death and resurrection. Now, it's vital, I think, for us to see what Jesus is making clear here is that no one has the right, none of us have the right to rewrite apostolic testimony, which is the very foundation of the church. You and I can be encouraged to know Christ. How? As it's revealed to us in his word. You, you and I are charged to confess Christ. What kind of Christ are we to confess? We find that in his word. And these apostles were then charged to go and preach Christ. According to what? Well, what they've been empowered to do, what they would have heard him say, what they would have read from the, from the prophets of old. And so you and I are called to know Christ, but how? To, to confess Christ, but how? To preach Christ, but how? As we close, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 2, verse 16. Romans chapter 2, verse 16. Turn to the left if you're still in the book of Ephesians. Romans chapter 2, verse 16. This is where Paul knew the authority that God in Christ had given to the apostles. 
Romans chapter 2, verse 16. He says this, speaking on the day of judgment. On that day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. That, that key phrase there, my gospel. See, the apostle, the apostle Paul could say that because of what Christ had entrusted to him or, or vested in him. There is no second foundation. The apostolic testimony cannot be changed. It, it cannot be altered. And anyone who comes along with and says that Christianity is found on a different truth, on a different foundation than what was entrusted to the apostles is frankly a liar. And Matthew 16 waits for anyone who says anything different than what Jesus exposes to us here. It, it waits for them. The foundation of our faith has been laid by Christ. Him as the cornerstone and the other apostles as its foundational teaching. Their teaching and their proclamation, which no one can alter. Now, friends, there are a couple ways that I think you and I can be charged to look at this. This is, in many ways, the, the foundational view of what a church is, the, the keys of the kingdom, the confessional testimony, who it's vested to, who it's given to. And, and you can see here that the lifting up or the glorifying of the beauty of the church. We often think of the church as an organization. We far often don't think of it as an organism, but we far too often think about what we can fix or what we can do. But remember that Jesus sees his church as something that is beautiful, as something that is good, as something that is cherished. Now, we look at it and we just see, man, this place is full of sinners, uh, full of people who are actually like me, sinful in their own mind. So how can, how can Jesus see it as beautiful and I see it as full of people who need help? I think as we see, here's an elevated view of the glory of Christ's bride. And so the question is, are you looking to and striving to build one another up here in knowing who Christ is in whole, in being able to confess who Christ is in whole, and able to, being able to express or preach who Christ is in whole? As we gather around each other, are, are you encouraging your brothers and sisters to know him as he's been given, to, to confess him as he is truthful, to be able to combat? No, 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 don't say that. God, God is one who is loving. God is one who is careful. God is one who is good. But also being able to share that gospel with other people. Another way to look at this is, do, do you view the foundation of the church in such a way that you find your refuge and commitment to one another here? The truth that is being exposed about the glory of a gracious God being proclaimed. Do you feel this as a sense of refuge? I pray you do. Let's pray together. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you that you have always been and always will be clear about who you are so that we can worship you most rightly. We thank you that as you continue to expose yourself through your word, your son's glory and greatness, that we can continually see him as one who we can run towards. And as you've given us these partners in the faith within this church, we pray that you would build us up to know you, to confess you, and to proclaim you to the ends of the earth. Our Lord, we pray that you give us strength, knowing that we are resting on your sure foundation. We pray this in Jesus' name.